Have you ever wondered why you coach? What are the reasons? What are the motivations? What are the expectations? I'll give you all this and more. This is The Bear and the Ball. Hi, I'm Nick Webster, Vice President of Adults for Cal South. Welcome to The Bear and the Bull. On this episode, we have somebody who has been there and done it all in the world of coaching. In fact, we've even taken a course together, a master coach and soccer leader, sponsored by the University of Delaware and the United Soccer Coaches Organization. I'm really thrilled to welcome the Director of Coaching for the Livermore Fusion and a United States Soccer Federation coaching educator, Greg Rubendahl. Greg, welcome to The Bear and the Bull. Nick, it's always a pleasure. Uh, love our chat. So really excited to share this uh, with your, your audience. Well, today we're going to talk about reasons why we coach. And you, with all your incredible knowledge, experiences, have come up with 10 reasons why I coach. So let's not waste any time. Let's get straight into it. The number one reason, well, it's not, uh, uh, oh, let, me, let me rephrase. Are they done in any kind of order or is there just 10 reasons? Uh, there's no specific uh, order, but I'll try and layer it out based on uh, level of experience and importance, in my opinion. In your opinion, well, it's only your opinion that actually counts on the bear and the bull. So... I guess let's go in reverse order then, Greg. It's probably completely messed you up. So what would be one of the least important reasons why I coach? The number two well, reason. <clears throat> I would say that not the least important, but also the most important but most common is the parent that turns into the coach. Uh, your child has just turned five years old. They're about to enroll in their recreational soccer experience. The club has asked who can join, who can volunteer to coach this team of five-year-olds this year. Three months pass. Now there's nobody who's volunteered to take their time. And with your marginal level of athletic experiences, uh, your marginal amount of time, you say, you know what? The team won't exist if I don't uh, volunteer. I'll be the coach of this team. You're scared. Well, I have... You have yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to ask, isn't that the most dangerous kind of coach? Or is that the kind of coach that you as a director of coaching can mold and 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 need into this Jose Mourinho type figure? Well, I, I believe it's the coach that needs the most assistance because like anything that you're learning and you don't have a lot of experience with is that you're scared. You're scared to fail. You're scared that you're going to damage other people's children, right? That Or that they're not going to come back next year, that you're the reason why they don't continue on with that sport, right? So I think it's, it's, it's really a scary time. And it is, the, for me, the most important facet of coaching in America is volunteer, parent coach. Um, it's how I got started as a coach. 
my mom was my little sister's U6 soccer coach, uh, a team called Barney's Backyard Gang. My first coaching assignment was being the trainer of that U6 team. That was my first coaching assignment. Well, when you think about, you know, the, the fantastic organization that is AYSO and how it is just built on volunteerism. So I think that is, is many parents' first step into, into that arena of coaching. And, and I like what you said about that parent who's, who's scared and who is maybe even overwhelmed and for, you know, old old cynical haggards like ourselves who have been around the sport for 40 years. It's, it's hard to imagine why someone would be scared about coaching. But if you think about there's a ball, there's, you know, little kids running around it. And, it, and it's very much like herding cats for, for someone who's brand new at, at coaching soccer. Well, and then when you're looking at it as well, the parents are most of them, if it's their first child, this is their reintroduction into the athletic arena. So they're coming into that environment with uh, their own experiences and a redo, right? I, I see this uh, quite some time that is that parents are putting their kids into sport to redo what they, you know, what they wanted to do. And so they have an opinion, right? Some of them may have some base knowledge of, of soccer. Some may have none. Some may have played at, you know, you know, high, high levels. And when I was a kid, it was more parents were just kid, putting kids into an activity than it was the fall sport. And now there's a large number of parents who are going into the game who played not just soccer, not just recreational soccer, but competitive level soccer through their adolescence and have an opinion. And because they have an opinion, right, they and they're paying a fee. They believe that they are right. So the, the volunteer that steps into the arena is the gladiator. And I would say to anyone out there who is stepping up into that position, understand you are in charge. It is your team. You volunteered. It is your team. Do not be intimidated by anyone. If somebody else wants to help out, have them help out, but don't allow them to take over your 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 job and your role if you're volunteering. I love it. Responsibility. Take it by the horns and don't give it up for anybody. Number nine, reason why I coach. <clears throat> well, this is uh, the I call the never was. So we talked about these parents who were standing on the sideline and they believed that they were going to be amazing players. And if it was only if, you know, that eighth grade PE teacher that embarrassed them hadn't said that one thing that allowed them to drop out of the sport, they would have been a superstar. So they were never really the best. They weren't resilient. They didn't have determination and grit. They didn't really stick with it, but they felt like at a certain point they could, you know, it was somebody else's fault that they never were the success that they wanted to be. Uh, is the never was coachable? The never was, that is a really good question. I would say that they are locked into that moment that they realize that they couldn't do it and somebody else's fault. So you have to kind of dig deep and find out what was that push point moment 
and unlock it for them, right? And as a director, uh, as yeah, a coach, as a-, as a coach, they're probably what I would like to call the armchair warrior, right? They're probably uh, going in on everybody's Twitter feed and you know telling everybody how it should be and this is that uh, because they're really knowledgeable but not experienced, but yet they feel active and engaged. I like the fact that the never was is usually very knowledgeable. And I think within the coaching ecosystem, if the never was can find a mentor that they trust, they actually have the potential to become a really good coach because of their knowledge and experiences and, and their desire to prove that they could have been. Exactly. I And, and again, I think that, it, there's something with it. If you're going into this uh, opportunity to coach and lead young young children, right? You're you're going back into a time when you feel like you lost something, and so you're trying to provide that opportunity for other kids that you didn't get. And I think it, it, yeah. it they definitely can be led down the path if you can erase the bitter. <laughs> so. You're, you're saying then that not only as a director of coaching, you have to be an armchair psychologist, which given your current look, Greg, glasses and beard, I think you you, you fit the mold perfectly. Yeah. Unfortunately, I spend... our, our listeners can't see that you look like an armchair psychologist, so they have to trust me. He does. Number <laughs> eight, why the, I coach. The has-been. So the has-been mm. isn't the never-was. The has been, there was a moment that something stopped them from playing. So whether it was getting cut from a team, an injury, uh, they're aging out, they were something fantastic, but then something happened that, you know, caused them to give it all up. So they look at it in, um, you know, in terms of, again, if this thing didn't happen, so whereas the never was was some person, then the has been, it was some thing, some activity, some moment, you know, whatever it was that they, you know, that they reach out to. Well, unfortunately, I can totally relate to the has been. <laughs> uh, having had many, many uh, glorious, glorious moments on the, on the, on the field of play. Uh, most notably in 2012 when a little band of rascals known as Kel FC beat the mighty Portland Timbers in the third round of the US Open Cup. That was that was the highlight of my coaching career, perhaps, or maybe maybe it was the Silverbacks in the fifth round. Who knows? But yes, totally get the has-been. Is the has-been, once again, I guess this is the most important question, is the has-been coachable? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, again... There's something that happened in their uh, in their development through the sport or other sports. It doesn't necessarily have to be soccer that they were a has been in. It could have been any number of sports. But there's again this feeling that I'm going and engaging with this group, and they they can pull from all the positive memories and negative memories, and what maybe that finality right? What it felt like in that finality. Cause everybody knows the day after you retire is 
probably the lowest you'll ever feel. Because as, as someone who identifies with anything that you do, the day after you retire, you realize the void in which your life you have to fill with something, right? A lot of people can't retire. They want to work until they're in the grave. And it's the same thing as an athlete is coming to the understanding of making a decision, I'm going to retire, then counting down the days, then the day of the celebration, but the day after is the loneliest place you'll ever be as a human. And I think that that's, I, I think that's really important to understand. So how do you fill that void? You're just going to start again in a different position and location. Yeah, that's a great point. Because uh, the has-been does have a wealth of experiences. And as my mentor loved to say to me, better, better to have been a has-been than a never was. <laughs> and that's why they're number eight. <laughs> number seven. <clears throat> this one is the nostalgist. So oh, this yeah. one is the one who uh, who is drawing upon the positive experiences that they had as a youth and looking back fondly at the memories that they had, whether that was with teammates or trips or events or games or work ethic, or whatever it is that they really romanticize about their uh, involvement in sport uh, in any capacity. They're looking back and, you know what, saying, you know what, I, I remember what it felt like. I would like to bring that to this new group, new generation of children. Let's do it together. So my pushback there, having worked with some coaches who have been in the industry a long time and maybe with the same team a long time. Yes, they're very nostalgic for what they've built and rightly so. They're very nostalgic for their longevity. But what I've noticed sometimes with the nostalgic coaches is they haven't actually grown with the game. They're still stuck in the past. And sometimes they're a little resistant to new ideas and to change. As the, as the director of coaching, how do you navigate that? Well, that that's, I think, a commonality with most people. As you grow older, you're always thinking back to the, the years of when you were a youth, when everything, you were idealistic. So when idealism is that idea that anything can happen and you go back and, oh, you know, well, when I was a kid, right? If you catch yourself saying, well, when I was younger then you need to step out of that, that thought pattern because you have to understand it is different today. It will be different tomorrow and it will be different next week. So you have to think ahead of the curve uh, on those ideas and you know whatever the trends are in anything, trends are yesterday's idea. Can you predict the <laughs> next trend? Right? Why, why in fashion... Do, do things re recycle 20 years later? It's because the kids now become adults, now influence the kids. And that's why it happens. Interesting point, because, and, and it's so funny that you use the phrase when I was a kid. So I've, t I've taken on a new position and uh, met, met the players yesterday. And I, and I did say, when I was a kid, we used to play two, three, five. And you know what? It's coming back. And they looked at me like, what? And I go, yes, 
You watch Manchester City play, Pep Guardiola plays a 2-3-5. And they're like, Nick, you're insane. Nobody plays with two defenders anymore. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Everybody plays with two defenders anymore. You know? That's why, so, that's why, that's why most teams have to play with a back five. Yeah, to, to... yeah of course. Um, the nostalgist. I like it. Number six. Uh, this is the visionary. So whereas somebody, Ooh. the nostalgist is looking back at the past, the visionary yeah. is looking to the future. And they're thinking of that idealism again, instead of looking back as in nostalgic terms, looking at what can be, what should be, what we want it to be. So they're more uh, interested in growing whatever their perspective is, right? So it's taking the past and putting it in the future rather than talking about the past and making it the present. I love the idea though of a coach wanting to be a visionary because, you know, I like to think of myself as a little visionary now and now and again, you know, there's, there's a, there's a little kernel that pops and I go, Oh my God, what a great idea that was. Um, so as, as the sport and, and, and let's, you know, we're based here in America as the sport continues to evolve and to grow, I'm thinking that the coaches, the visionary is almost the driver of the sport. And I would agree with that in, uh, in most terms, um, depending on what their vision is. So you'd have to, with a visionary, talk about their why and understand why and what their vision is, because the vision of many coaches is like, following a blind man in some cases, right? Like it, their vision is not so good. So if you can shape the visionary to follow a, uh, a more, a real like a growth mindset and achievement based mentality, then I think it's an extremely uh, uh, important person within your staff or, or within your, your game. So, I'm hearing that you think the visionary must have a great deal of clarity about them. It can't be, can't be, it can't be wishful visionary. It has to be strategic and well-planned visionary. You have to be pragmatic. Yes, absolutely. I think, I think that with a vision comes a plan. Vision without a plan. Vision without a plan is just a dream or a nightmare. Yeah. Who said that? I was, as, you, as you were talking, that quote like went into my head and I'm like, who said it though? Someone smarter than you and I. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Number five. So the next one is the competitor. So this is someone type A type personality probably successful in anything and everything that they've done in their lives, they need, not want, need to win. At all costs, regardless of the, out, uh, of the, of the things that go along, everything is about winning. They are competing. They want to win whatever it is. So this, this person, in my opinion, can be hugely uh, influential in your club or your community. The question is, what kind of influence do they have? 
Yes, the winner all cost coach can be destructive, and 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 this is only my 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 personal belief. Obviously, in the professional game, you have to win at all costs; otherwise, you're fired. And being that you know, professional coaches, this is their livelihood. No one wants to get fired. Everybody wants to win. Then we move down the chain. And here in, in the US, the next step from the professional coach is probably the collegiate coach. Uh, and if we're going to discuss this, how many programs in the country do you believe right now are must-win programs? Uh, you'd have to go back to who is their boosters, what is the expectations. The must-win organizations on the women's side, uh, UNC, Notre Dame, Stanford, UCLA. Those for me, those are four must-win programs uh, that I've seen on the women's side. On the men's side, because it's a much more fluid top 25, I don't think there's so many... I think almost every job is must win on the men's side because uh, it's not at like, whereas in women's collegiate sport, soccer is the, 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 uh, the, 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 the pinnacle, top, right? right? It's the pinnacle. That's yeah. the word. It's the pinnacle yeah. of, of collegiate sports. It's the top one. Whereas men's soccer, it's number four, five in a university program. So it's not as important or it's, it's important to win because you need to still drive numbers through that. So the people are a lot more fickle with lack of success in my opinion, because it's not driving. Whereas there's a lot of funding happening through to women's programs. And there's a lot more stability, if you will, within those programs, there's a lot of volatility on the men's side. And that's, that's my observations. Mm. The competitor at the high school. Now, when we look at high school soccer, I've been a I'm a huge proponent of high school soccer, and and I've always I've always fought for high school soccer over club soccer because I believe that there is so much more camaraderie. There's school pride. Uh, there's there's more history involved. You know, to get your name up on the on the board of the school is going to live there forever. Um, but at the same time, what are we trying to teach kids at school? Are we trying to teach them to be high-level soccer players or are we te- trying to teach them to be good people? Yeah, uh, I would say looking looking into this in a, in a really specific way in terms of my community, uh, we have two high schools. Um, and obviously they have their rivalry games in every single sport. And the city is literally divided by one street. One street divides the two in town. And to play for one or the other is something that historically has happened in every single sport. So that's where that, I think the importance of that. So understanding the history, understanding the demographics, uh, but also when you show up at 7.45 for your 8 a.m. classes and you go until 3 p.m. And the entire day while you're learning, you're mentally preparing for that big game after school that all of your classmates could potentially go and see. There's 
there's a lot of emotion that goes into that. There's a lot of, you know, come see us, see what we do, see how we do it type of uh, thinking. So I, I think that's, that's part of it. It's social. It's, um, it's character driven, right? It's, um, it's defining. Whereas club sport doesn't necessarily define you because there's so much extra time outside of that club experience that, that coaches we really can't control. Right. But as a coach in, and being, as we just described, number five, the competitor in this rivalry that you're talking about, does the coach get fired if he loses five, six years on the road? Quite possibly, depending. What I would say, to be honest, in high school coaching, there's not much permanence. Uh, The people that they choose to coach in high schools usually are teachers in the school or they have to hire from outside the school. And when they hire outside the school, that's kind of a temporary job, right? If you're a teacher on site, you see those kids day in, day out. You check in with their English teacher, with their social studies teacher, with their math teacher. You know what their grades are. If you're that outside temporary uh, person, you do not have a real deep impact on those children. So I would say this is why most schools prefer on-campus coaches. The problem with that is most on-campus coaches are not necessarily soccer coaches. Right. Although they can still be competitors, though. They can. Let's look at the competitor in the club environment. And I think this is where things get kind of murky and cloudy because I think for many people, the club environment is where you are meant to improve as a player. Your technical and tactical abilities are meant to flourish in this more competitive environment. However, if the coach is just focused purely on winning, Both you and I know that you don't have to develop players to win. All you have to do is to develop a system that the other team can't cope with. Yeah. How uh, do you go about, as the director of coaching at the Livermore Fusion, how do you go about balancing the need to win because parents are paying good money? They don't want their kids to be on a sucky team that loses every weekend. But how do you balance that coach who desperately wants to win with your overall vision of the club? and developing young children to become lifelong fans and players of this beautiful game. So first of all, you have to define winning. So for your team, for your environment, define winning. Winning can be uh, task-oriented. It can be process-oriented, not product-oriented, or focused on one single thing. It's not a scoreline. We've all been a part of the game where we've lost 1-0, and felt like we won, or won one zero, and felt like we lost. So that that feeling is not necessary. Define what you want and what you need. How do you define winning? Now that said, uh, going into it, um, I I have a funny phrase that I always tell uh, my players: like, how do you how do you spell fun? W I N. Exactly. <laughs> but you can turn it around. How do you spell win? F-U-N. So the Mm -hmm. idea is what is the motivations of the players, of the group, of the parent group, the supporters? What are their needs? Address those needs. If their need is to win, 
put yourself in environments that you can win. Don't put yourself in an environment that you can't win a game. Then you're going to lose and you're going to lose them. Right? So make sure that you're understanding the group social dynamics and their understanding of what they, and it might be general, but it might be specific. And this goes to any coach who has their first uh, days with their team, understand the players and the families and their motivations for why they are there and they are with you. And if you understand that, it's a lot easier to operate the rest of your tasks if you know where they're coming from because you have to match them. And I would say that nine times out of ten, the competitor comes from their competitive nature, not the needs of the players or the families that they work with. Yeah, I think that totally jives with your point that you made a few few uh, reasons ago, understanding the why. So I think that's a great question that any any coach needs to ask their players, their administrators, and their parents. What is your why? Number four, reasons why I coach. The entrepreneur. So this one has really come up in the last like 30 years because when I was a kid, there was no paid soccer jobs outside of college jobs. There wasn't even a professional, uh, a professional league, men's or women's. So over the last 30 years, it went from a completely voluntary activity to coach to now it's a full-time profession. And in some cases, an extremely lucrative full-time profession. So the entrepreneur looks at the market and thinks like a business person on how they can squeeze the juice out of what we're doing. And this is how most parents view clubs, club coaches, or club directorship, when in reality, we are not entrepreneurs. We are hopefully teachers first and foremost. And I can, only, I can count on my hand the number of people that I know that make a very, very good, I can buy a house living as a coach in and of itself. Do you think, though, that the entrepreneur, and you and I both know entrepreneurs, so we won't name names, but do you think sometimes the entrepreneur, no, not sometimes, the entrepreneur is more focused on the dinero than the product that they are putting out? Well, I would say that the entrepreneur recognizes that there's money to be made on the things that we're good at, right? And there's a need for it. So I would say they're opportunistic. I wouldn't say that it's not about, it's not necessarily about the bottom line or, or, or that case. Um, I would just say that they're, they're savvy enough to understand that the market has a need and that they're able to fill it. And more importantly, they can charge top dollar to do it. And I, isn't that amazing though? Because only in America could you get away with charging top dollar to teach a game that basically people can go out into my street and play for free right now. And and watch about a thousand YouTube, Instagram videos on how to get better at it and how to even compete with it. Uh, Yeah. I trust me when I say the entrepreneur is a very savvy individual who's understanding of what it takes to win this game in America. Right. And it's, and again, uh, like it, hate it. It's why most countries in the world 
despise the United States because this is really what we're best at is understanding how to squeeze the juice from that, you know, from that coconut. I do wish that I was an entrepreneur. Um, life would certainly be very different. Number three, reasons uh, why I coach. This is the, the community leader. That they come in uh, and they coach because they're a part. They coach the baseball team, the football team, the basketball team. They're just a coach. They just, they have, these are, this is their group. This is their tribe. And they're leading the tribe. Doesn't matter what they do. They could, you know, they're doing underwater basket weaving. They, everything is together. They're just a community leader in all facets of what they're doing. They're looking to lead the charge. Well, the community leader though is, is, to me, the ideal candidate uh, to mold as a coach because obviously they have they have giving running through their entire essence, giving back to a sport. And it doesn't matter which sport it is. They just have this desire to communicate a love of physical competition. And so when you're working with somebody like that, I guess the... the the thing is to get them to maybe to focus because they have so many, so many possible distractions. I would say, so the community leader is more about leading the group and their tribe. So this is where a community leader can go astray. So I look at like those club hopping coaches that go from club to club to club and the people follow them that, you know, the Pied Piper of Hamlet, like they follow them around, right? And so they can be a great asset, but they also can fracture the community because their ego is directly attached to their tribe. So again, really important if you have somebody who is uh, really, you know, has a good following. But I would say that when you in your town, notice that that one coach gets let go or has a disagreement with the club and decides to go and make their own club. And now instead of having one club, you have two. And now instead of two, you have four and four becomes eight, right? Now you have a problem. So your community leader, whereas you would think can bring the groups together in many cases, I've found divide the group in between, you know, us and them. Such an interesting statement you just made about these coaches that move from club to club and still retain their tribe. How on earth does that happen? Because if you're leaving, if you're constantly, and I, and I, and I know these coaches, I mean, they're constantly leaving the club. They're not leaving the club because everything's kumbaya there. They're leaving the club because they're pissed off for one reason or another. And yet... These parents follow them everywhere. How do they do it? Par parents or players, right? And and again, it's uh, trust, right? The players and the families buy in to that person. That person may not work well with others, and or there's a juxtaposition in terms of opinions and and things that they believe to be right and true, and so there's a divide that becomes, and between. Us and them, I'm with us. And and, and again, uh, as somebody who works as a club director, I am them. I, I, so I have to try and become us.
because I know that that's that's what this is. It's it's not easy, right? You you have so many pieces, and I'll give you a good example: is that when you make a decision in a really large club and you're first there as a club director, and you say you cut a player from a team, and you don't know that that player is cousins with this player and friends with that player. And all of a sudden, one simple decision, which is in the best interest of that isolated group, becomes a firestorm, right? It's a, it's, you're blowing on a, a, a spark and you don't even know it. That's, that's what happens as a club leader and director. It's so hard. So anybody who's going into directorship, the first thing I can say is understand who are the political players in your environment, both uh, from a city standpoint a parks and rec standpoint and a social standpoint within your communities and get to know them. You don't have to be best friends, but get to know them because they can crush you and chase you out of town real quick. <laughs> Great advice, Greg. Obviously someone who has been chased uh, on an occasion or two. The number two reason why you coach. Uh, this is the purest. And this person is somebody just is in love with the game. Everything that they has as a player, as a coach, as a parent or whatever, they're just in love with the game itself. Just everything is fantastic. Life is roses. They can see past all the chaos. They can see past the controversy because they know that it's all about the greater good of the game. Uh, I believe that most people get into this profession believing as a purist. And then they fracture off into the, one of these other directions. In, in, in the competitive environment that we have this idea like the game is so great, and, but then things happen and people lose this. And only those who really have a good understanding of themselves and their purpose within that stay as a purist. Yeah, I've, as I was hearing you talk and thinking about the purist, and I'd like to think I'm somewhat of a purist, I think they are the exception rather than the rule. Mm -hmm. Okay, here we go, Greg. Drum roll time. The number one reason why I coach. The number reason why, Nick, is because you do it for next generation. You are the philanthropist. Mm -hmm. You have a love of humanity so deep that you put yourself on the cross in front of the firing squad and underneath massive stress for the people. And regardless of what you have, the people with the game, in this game, and for this game, live paramount. Yeah, I have to agree. I think one of my greatest achievements at uh, one of the uh, high schools that I worked at was the annual alumni five-a-side contest that started with something like 10. And the last time I had it was 80 former students who are now married. They have kids. They're grown up. They still have the love of the game that I'd like to say I imparted my love and they took a little bit of and they ran with it. And and it is it is always about the next generation. We get so caught up in the now and the winning now and the and the trophies now. But really, our our legacy, and I and I look at you when I say our legacy, 
is that next generation. Do the kids we teach today love the game as much as we do 20 years from now? And are they willing to be number 10, the parent turned coach? That's For me, that's success. What a great way to wrap up the 10 reasons why I coach. Greg, for our listeners who are, are interested in learning a little bit more about you because you are a mine of information, where can they get hold of you? Uh, feel free. You can uh, email me at gnr.coaching at uh, gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter. It's uh, at S-A-C-Q-E-R pronounced soccer, but it stands for speed, agility, coordination, quickness, endurance, recovery, or uh, Instagram uh, at soccer.tv. And again, that's S-A-C-Q-E-R.tv. Greg Rugmendahl, the Director of Coaching for the Livermore Fusion and a coaching educator for the United States Soccer Federation. Thank you for joining the Bear and the Ball. For more on Cal South. Please visit the CalSouth website at CalSouth.com. You can also find us on Instagram at CalSouthSoccer, on Twitter at CalSouthSoccer as well, and of course on Facebook. And if you want to follow up with me, I am available at Nick Webster, a very easy one on Twitter. We will speak to you all next week. For Greg Rubendahl, this has been Nick Webster. This is the Bear and the Ball. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>